This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. One of my favorite cartoons of all time is the Disney and Pixar movie, The Incredibles. It takes an element from a very real psychological profile of a corrupt and evil mind and turns it into one of the most interesting supervillain themes used in comic and animation superheroes. A person suffering from narcissistic personality disorder must have a villain to fight. Without the opposing side for them to stand against, they become restless and uneasy. Their feeling of self-worth and security is solely based on how well they can fight against what they see as their life battle. In The Incredibles, a supervillain actually lets the hero of the story grow stronger. He's allowed to come close and thrive just simply so that the villain can fight his battle. The word narcissism comes from the mythical Narcissus in Greek, Greek mythology. Narcissus fell in love with his own image, reflected in a pool of water, and he was unable to leave. His love for his own image was the cause of his demise. With narcissistic personality disorder, the description from the myth is exactly a representation of the mental suffering that plagues the patient. Frequently, when a simple man rises to great popularity and their once simple life is seen as an idol before others, the symptoms of this disorder will start to appear. That's when the suffering begins. People suffering from this disorder have a very obvious focus on themselves as the condition worsens. They struggle to find comfort or satisfaction in the environment that surrounds them and it begins to seem evil to their distorted view. Because of this they have difficulty with empathy and they have hypersensitive reactions to any sort of discussion that draws close to debate. Because this condition is a direct result to pride their vulnerability is to shame rather than it is to guilt. 
They try to feed that inward pride, pretending to be much more than they really are in all aspects of life. And they detest those who do not admire them. They brag on themselves with very subtly but persistent and exaggeration in their achievements. The worst and most damaging, damaging aspect of a narcissist is the fact that they're unable to view the world from the perspective of other people. Their view of the world is perceived as the only accurate view. Otherwise, they give in to demoting their own opinion and, quite frankly, fight against their own pride. And sadly, there's very little treatment and there's no cure. In 1925, F. Scott Fitzgerald published a book entitled The Great Gadsby about a fictional person who struggled with this plague of the mind. Gadsby is described as an archetype of self-made American men seeking to join high society and has been described as a pathological narcissist for whom the ego ideal has become inflated and destructed destructive, and whose grandiose lies, poor sense of reality, sense of entitlement, and exploitive treatment of others conspire to his own demise. When we examine the many fictional stories that William Branham promoted, subtle yet persistent lies that lifted himself in stature before his fellow man, we really find another Gadsby. And it was destructive not only to his own personality, but his mental health as well. Branham claimed that a mental condition plagued him every seven years throughout his entire life. And it's very evident from the symptoms of this condition that his recorded life matches most, if not all of them. But there's another huge problem here. By nature of a cult, Many men pattern their lives after the leader. We see it in each of the religious groups that we can now label as a cult, and the Branham denomination of faith is no different. The leader becomes an icon of faith, and men try to mold themselves into that image. Having been raised under the open discussions of several men who either knew William Branham or who were even involved with his ministry, Studying narcissism is a real eye-opener. Many men that I know, even family members, are textbook cases, having every single symptom in each of the studies that I've read on this disorder. And it's very damaging to the family unit. Narcissism breeds narcissism. And because most cases are a direct result of having a childhood deprived of the normal love and affection that children require for growth and mental health. When the father of the family unit suffers from this disease, his children are likely to fight it themselves. From a religious standpoint, and is with the case with any disease, it is a result of sin. Even the common cold is a result of sin, something we must now face but because Adam disobeyed God. But narcissism is a direct result of the sin in the life of the patient, not a long-term historical sin from which they had no involvement. While the patient cannot help himself or herself, hunger to feed pride turns into an obsession. 
And that obsession leads to the destruction of their own minds. And they must have a villain. In all cases of this affliction, it is cause for great sympathy. Even though this affliction causes them to become aggressively violent in conversation or in deed, they really cannot help themselves. This disease is similar to the dependency on insulin and diabetes. And the villain is their insulin. Whatever the villain may be, from political figures to groups of people to even close friends, the person suffering will aggressively combat the enemy. The problem here is that with a spiritual leader, their villain becomes the villain of every single one of their followers. The symptoms in William Branham's life were not always so evident. As in the textbook cases, the lies were very, very subtle, even believable. Who would question his own birth date or his story about the death of his wife and child? Who would think to investigate whether he was already a Pentecostal pastor after he claimed to have joined this Pentecostal call later in life? Who would guess that his stories of a childhood hunting and trapping to feed his poor family in the hills of Kentucky would be fictional stories? And the early ministry had no supervillain. The denominational churches that would later become Branham's villain were all in one accord as his ministry grew in popularity. All were welcome. All started to become very close to this rising cult leader. Like the infamous syndrome in The Incredibles, the enemy was drawn close and given strength through uplifting, sermons designed to build the faith. When they drew him out of their circles, Branham drew a bigger circle to draw them back in. And in the Christian life that's filled with grace, this really is the lifestyle that we should aspire to. We have small battles, but God has already fought the supervillain for us. Satan was defeated when Christ died on the cross for our sins. He has no power. His power has been stripped from him by just three nails. But a narcissist personality cannot rest peacefully with this type of Christian life, especially when they make their minds focus on Satan himself for their supervillain. That villain must be given power, and the work that was done on the cross must be lessened in power and in result. This type of personality must dethrone Christ. In his sermons leading to the dethroning, we find subtle changes in the nature of Christ, hence that Christ was just an angel, Michael, or focus on how Christ was a prophet rather than focus on his deity. Branham would emphasize the words of Christ, I can do nothing except the Father first shows me, and start teaching that these words meant that Christ had to see a vision like the Old Testament prophets once did. But ultimately, in a sermon called Satan's Eden, William Branham dethroned Christ. Christ was no longer in control of this world. He no longer sat on the throne in the right hand of authority from God. The heavens still belong to Christ, but under this delusion, 
This world and all that is in it belongs to Satan, not God. Deuteronomy 10.14 says this. It praises God for his ownership. It says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Revelation 13.12 tells us that God gave gave the beast authority to deceive. And it was not the beast's authority to give or claim for his own. We are all under a test to see if we'll be faithful to God or be easily deceived by Satan. But regardless of the authority given to deceive, the New Testament books all point to Christ as the eternal Son of God, sitting on the throne in all power and all authority. Jude says this, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. In other words, eternally. Jude 1.25 If we study the sermons of William Branham chronologically and identify his supervillains and compare these doctrines with Scripture, we can easily see the delusion. We can identify twisting of Scripture in order to lessen the power of the true superhero, Jesus Christ, and increase the power of the evil villain, Satan. When the villain was women, a doctrine rose from the depths of hell, through Branham, that Satan was her designer. While the Bible says male and female, he created he, them, Branham severed the female part of the original creation and handed it over to Satan on a silver platter. Satan was now given power to create, instead of being just a lowly angel. When the villain was married to Ahab, the nickname that President Kennedy had as Branham went on a parade calling Mrs. Kennedy Jezebel, Branham claimed that he needed to storm the gates of the White House, storm the gates of that lawn to condemn his Ahab for letting the powerful supervillain Jezebel Kennedy into the White House as First Lady. Listen to what Branham says here. I can just feel the pain and suffering that is plaguing his mind as he lifts this supervillain Jezebel Kennedy into power. He says, but there'll be a one-man system come forth with the power and anointing of Elijah to fulfill the prophecy. In other words, himself. Hallelujah. He'll shake it. And remember, he prophesied to them and prophesied and told all things, and God worked with him. But when his final message was attacked on the White House, when John came, his final message was attacked on the White House of that day. Elijah's final message, when he walked down that road that morning after being in the presence of God, walked down there in the road with all hairs all of him, his bald head shining, his whiskers blowing, them little eyes was gleaming with the glory of God, and that stick was in his hand, and his feet was just as steady as they could be. What was he doing? Listen to this. He says, walking down from Samaria into the presence of the White House and saying, Thus saith the Lord, fearing nothing. 
The churches had turned him down. The people had turned him down. So now he's giving his final attack upon the White House. But as we all know, President Kennedy's life was cut short. Branham's supervillain was overthrown before thus saith the Lord could verbally abuse Jacqueline for trying to look pretty. You can almost feel the letdown in Branham's voice from November 22, 1963 through most of 1964 as he searched for a new villain. Ultimately, the villain that Branham lifted into power was one that he would die fighting in his mind. It's a villain that the cult fights today, though some have returned to Branham's original stance in the beginning. Branham would finally tell the world that anyone, anyone who joined a denominational church had taken the mark of the beast, conflicting with his original message and even one of his visions. He says this, It'll never be forgiven them. A denomination, to wear the brand of a denomination, is the mark of the beast. Those people, the very same people that he once fellowshiped and drew a bigger circle around, to draw them in, had become his arch enemy. Branham's delusion had turned him against even his own friends and fellow soldiers in the faith. They were now mortal enemies, and they had been marked with something that even the power of the cross could not forgive under this delusion. The cross had no power. Christ was dethroned. Authority was taken away from Christ and handed over to Satan. Satan had a superpower now, one that Christ could not even forgive. And at this point, Branham fully severed himself from the body of Christ. Other Christians in the faith, regardless of their work with Christ and the Holy Spirit, were now the evil ones, the minions of Satan. And Christ, who has his hand over his church, was scorned. The work that Christ did on Calvary to save even the lowest sinner was taken away. This Christ was now just a man, a man who Branham claimed was abandoned by God in the Garden of Gethsemane, a man who died on the cross without power, a man who died in vain, a man who could not save the lost if they joined one of these churches professing his name, a man who raised up new souls marked with the seal that Branham called the Mark of the beast. Christ had become the villain. Oh.